Hi, I'm Dave Parker, and I'm the CEO of Trajectory Media. I'm a five-time founder based in Seattle, Washington. I sold three of those companies and closed two, and have been part of 16 transactions total. So as, a, as an operator, um, founder, board member, or advisor. So that's a little bit about uh, my quick bio. This, this, is, this is Diversified, diversified game. 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 A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So, let the game begin. Hey, it's Kellen, and today on Diversified Game, I have a guest that I actually got to sit down with while being in the Pacific Northwest for about six years. This is what happens when you get to move to Seattle. You get to meet people who've started multiple companies. He's also written a book. He's also doing some great things in Africa, in Atlanta. He's going to get into it all, and the links are in the description for all of that that I've spoke about. So when you go get the book, Go right on to Amazon, click it, follow us along, whether you're listening or you're watching. This is Dave Parker. He's going to be in Africa enough where they're going to call him Chief Dave Parker. You got to get a title. But Dave, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Oh, Kellen, it's so good to see you. I love the change of venue, by the way. The palm trees always look good on you. So it's compared to the Northwest and, and Douglas fir trees, I love the palm trees. Well, well, thank you for that. Thank you for that. But it is all about you. I want people to know, just before you get into everything that you have done, or you can't get into everything, but into the many things you've done, how did it start for you? Because many people might look at you and say, well, it's nice if you're royalty or if you're blue blood and you just, you know, we're given these things. But, you know, I know you definitely earned it. So, Talk about, you know, how did, you know, being a serial entrepreneur, an investor, how did being a business owner start for you? Yeah, I think for me, I can look back and see early trends in being unemployable, right? So not not really taking, uh, I think there were, I worked for some good bosses and for some challenging bosses. And one of the things I learned uh, early on in my career is I'm super curious. And in retrospect, that's a, a, a great trait for an entrepreneur. Right, is to be curious about how things work and the mechanics of things and how people make money and things there. But the background story is I grew up in a small town in southwestern Washington, uh, graduating class of 101. Uh, seven of us went to college. So, um, and a single mom during the 60s and 70s, right, who was on food stamps. So I, I think I had, um, I couldn't wait to get out of that town and get to a bigger city. So I got a, a scholarship to the University of Washington. It was my one chance to get there. Uh, had I not gotten that one scholarship, I wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have gone to college. It, the, the family didn't have the money to send me, and and uh, I didn't clearly didn't, at that point didn't know how to make any money. So if you remember Caddyshack the movie, I was a caddy scholar. So and I got into uh, to the University of Washington and was able to get through there in four years. And I want to say I was a great student. I think I, I'm kind of a subscriber to the theory that A students teach and B students work for guys like me, right? So um, but always a hard worker, right? So my my method to madness was like, hey, I will outwork people. I may not know what they know, or I may not have the inside track, but I'm willing to work harder than most. So for me, that was uh, uh, the first company I launched um, right out of, um, well, right out of college, I was working for a small company and uh, started to kind of launch out on my own. And, and people were like, we well, can't do that. You need a job. So I went back and actually got a job at a big company in the wireless industry. So remember the big, big old cell phones. So in that vintage, and uh, I always said cell phones were expensive and didn't work well. And now they're cool and still expensive and still don't work well. But uh, with the wireless industry was super interesting because it changed so fast in the early days, right? We did direct sales, we did indirect sales, we did channel sales. And you basically lived a series of li- business lifetimes in a very short order, and I look at, back to that and go, that was a really great place to learn um, sales and marketing in particular because the, the market changed so fast. So, and then from there, I made the leap into uh, software business, especially particularly in software services. So I worked for a large services company that did contract um, staffing for Microsoft and other tech companies. So I learned a lot about um, the, making the switch from wireless to the tech industry. And then saw a big gap in the market is every month the Microsoft folks would come to us and say, hey, how much software are you going to sell? And every month we would say, we don't sell software, we sell services. 
And uh, after a few months, I was like, how many companies out there like us that don't sell software? He's like, all of them. And I'm like, what do you mean? So I launched my first company called License Online. It was a specialty software distributor focused on those channel partners and helping them sell software to their customers. And we grew that from zero to 32 million in sales in four years and 150 employees and made a ton of mistakes, man. I, I like the, the scars on my back have healed, but I still get, I still get twitchy at times. So learned a lot about that first startup, sold it in 2002. So if you remember the, the great recession, I'm sorry, the, uh, the tech bubble survived the tech bubble, survived 9-11, sold the company. And uh, Wednesday was a great sale, but it was one of those where we, you know, we got a transaction done, which was super important in the early days, but learned a ton, especially what not to do on the first one. You know, that's great. Can you tell the, the audience, you know, because they hear numbers like, okay, 32 million. Oh, yeah. wow. I got 32 million in my bank account. Um, I, you know, I can just run with it. Uh, it's not like being a YouTuber or influencer where if you're getting, you know, $80,000 a month that you just get to hold it because it's all yours if you have no team. How how did you get your mind, you know, from that being from a small town to going into, you know, UW and doing speech communication to saying, oh, $32 million. Like, how do you stay humble? How do you manage that? You know, the, the profit on that, you know, people, I'm sure get you up for money thinking, hey, you're rich now. Um, you know, how, how did you, how did that flow in that just progression work so you could stay sane and humble? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. The, and when we first started raising money in 1998 and we were going out to the market, the market was, you know, looking back on it, was kind of super hot like it is today in some ways in the startup community. But you could go to the market with an idea on the back of a napkin and like, I have this concept and you could help, you could go raise money. You, you can't do that today. Right. So investors are much more um, aware of what what the business models are and how, how they're going to make money and what the exit is. So I think the, the big difference between then and now is when I hear founders say like, oh, I have this great idea. I'm going to go raise money. I'm like, well, your need for money and your ability to raise money are two completely different things. Right. So you, you need to have traction today and a product and a team and you really have to lay some basic groundwork to get that done. I think at the time we there was lots we didn't know. Right. So every once in a while, somebody would say, hey, would you, you know, knowing what you know now, right, would you do that first company over? And the answer, oh, hell no. Like, no way. <laughs> because we were, you know, we were competing with um, big software distributors like Ingram and Tech Data. And, and those companies did 13 and 15 billion dollars, respectively. And even though we went from zero to 32 million, we were still super tiny. And Microsoft was our biggest vendor. And, and like, you know, I would say it's like dancing with a gorilla. You're not through till he is. Right. So it's just tough being a small company in, a, in an ecosystem of big players. So I think those things keep you aware and grounded and humble because you always recognize that this is this is just a slog and you're kind of fighting it out. So doing stuff that's innovative, you know, is, is part of the fun. I think for most founders, you're like, if you do something completely different than it's been done before, but also knowing that how you do it differently, like there's a hook to the to the. Are we taking friction out of the process for the for the customer? Are we introducing friction for the for the customer? Like, how do we make it easier for the customer to do business with us? But when you do it the first time, it's easy to copy, right? So, like, uh, Microsoft came along to the other distributors and said, "Hey, you guys need to do what 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 these guys are doing." So, a little bit of lesson learned, I would say, it was a um, you know, there's there's goods and bads in that humbling experience of getting it sold, but. 2002 wasn't a great time to sell a company. So I, I took the uh, took the job with the company who bought us. Um, they sent me on vacation for a month so they could recruit my team without me. And then when I came back, I got fired for the first time in my career from a company I started. <laughs> so that was a that was a, you know part of the part of the process, right? Is are you going to fit in at a company that that you sold or not? Because if you if you still want to have control and still want to make the decisions, you have to recognize that's no longer the case. We, we hear that so often, um, you know, whether people um, sell their company and work for it or if they get, you know, venture uh, funding and then they get kicked out of that company. We've had, you know, pe people go to that. Um, so many people are now, you know, I, I have a great idea and there are some great ideas. It's just, you know, consistency and people being able to actually do what they say. Um, what is the number one mistake you see folks who are looking for funding 
do? Because they come to you saying, hey, I got this great pitch deck. I got it. It's done. Um, you know, I've, I've proven that I've made, you know, some money. Um, but I'm sure you see so many deals where you're like, another one of these. What is that, like, number one mistake that can just irk you and say, don't do this? Yeah, for sure. So, so I spent some time with a nonprofit called Startup Weekend, and uh, we did events worldwide, and we sold that company to Techstars. So, in the last full year there, we did 1,265 events worldwide, 74,000 attendees, 120 countries, kind of crazy events. And people would come out of those weekends, and they're like, Kellen and I met at Startup Weekend, we're going to leave our day jobs and go start And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Like, before you do that, there are some things you can know. And that was actually part of the, the motivation of finishing and doing the book Trajectory Startup, because it, it, I ran it as a program first, really helping founders to get, to get ready to go pitch. And the very first time we ran it, the very first session, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I love this. This was great. And you're kind of funny and entertaining. And the content was awesome, but I don't have an idea. And I'm like, how did you get in here? Because <laughs> right? I'm like... Clearly, this is for startup founders. And, and her question was, you know, what do you, what do you do if you don't have an idea? I'm like, you know, that's a great question. And I actually need to give that a thoughtful reply versus being flippant, which I am on occasion, as you know. So I was, I was like, I'm going to go, you know, put some thought. And it ended up being a chapter of the book because what I, what I realized is there's no, no one has written very much about like what makes a good idea, right? And it's a little bit like, um, everybody's weight loss goal on, you know, a great, you know, on a Peloton or whatever, where they're like, everybody has a story, but you, but your story isn't, isn't their story. Right. So we basically framed up what are, what are 11 frameworks for great ideas for startups is one of the chapters of the book. So, so give you an example. One is a, is the ecosystem view. So, or the waterline view to combine the two. So when I think about an ecosystem, there's all the places in the ecosystem where you can make money. So I use Uber Elevate as an example for that. So I had a chance to go to the Uber Elevate conference. For those of you who don't know, it's Uber's flying car. So it's eVTOLs, electronic takeoff, vertical takeoff and landing. And what Uber did that was smart was they looked at everything required to make this work, right? I need somebody to manufacture aircraft, which was Bell Helicopter or other folks that are in that market. I need somebody to run power to the top of the, um, pa- the parking garages so the vehicles could take off. I need the FAA to approve it nationally. I need the local governments to approve it locally. I need, so they, they basically looked at all of the things you need to make this work. And then they looked at where the money was and they said, oh, we're going to do all these things. But all, where, the, where the money wasn't, they're like, oh, we're going to have partners. So, and I think for startup founders, one of the challenges is we see a problem and we don't look at it in the context of the ecosystem or a workflow or the, the waterline view of it. And the problem is below the waterline, which means it's still a problem, but you're not going to make any money. So is the problem above the waterline <clears throat> where I can actually make money and then reinvest in the problems that are below the waterline to create competitive advantage? So I think not, you know, the, the problem for us as founders is we have, if we have one idea, then if somebody comes along and says, wow, the baby's ugly, we're like, oh, we're offended. Right. I can't believe Dave would say that. Right. So, and it's, it's really not bad. It's really just like, I would rather, I don't think the Silicon Valley is right about fail fast. Right. At least for, I didn't have a rich uncle. Right. So failing fast wasn't an option. Right. So I don't know about you, but from my, where I came from, failure wasn't an option. Right. That was more the phrase than fail fast. And if failure is not an option, then you don't take any risks. Right. So for you as a founder, if you're thinking about doing a startup, what you effectively need to do is de-risk your idea as quickly as you can for the first investor, who's you, right? So you need to go do some uh, customer development and market validation. Do the customers really want what you have? Have you done the, the competitive analysis and somebody else already done what you're doing? So I'll give you an example right now. Hopin is a great example of a virtual and hybrid events platform. Raised a tremendous amount of money, right? So they built this massive war chest. And so if you're trying to raise funds in that market, the answer is Hopin sucked all the oxygen out of the room, right? Can you still build a good business there? Sure, right? Will it be hard to fundraise? Oh, hell yeah, right? And I think people see that and see what Hopin raised. They're like, well, we want to go into that market. I'm like, actually, quite the opposite. You want to find a market that somebody hasn't raised, you know, $3 billion already at $125 billion post money value or something crazy. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's that, that's crazy. Now, talking about crazy, 
you have, um, you know, talked to me about Egypt and even in the Fearless Fund. And I want to say those connect because more and more Black Americans like myself are finding, hey, we can get, we're, we're finding out where we're from. We're finding out that the governments are saying, if you want to create business over here, um, we will make it available. We'll even give you citizenship. Like in Sierra Leone, there's a program. Ghana has a program. Quiet Escape Nigeria has a, <laughs> has a program. But can you talk about what you're doing in Egypt, which for those of you who don't know, is in Africa. I've had people debate me with that. Which, and, and I've had to say, uh, yeah, Jesus even went to Africa. No, he didn't. And I've had to explain. Let's, let's talk about it. White, blue eyed, maybe not so much. Just yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that to each his own, but everyone needs a teachable moment. You know, we, none of us grew up with knowing um, what we know now. So For we sure. try to show, try to show grace, but we can laugh at you at the same time. Um, sure. totally. yeah, yeah. Talk about, you know, what you're doing in Egypt and then you can also, you know, uh, let us know what the fearless fund and, and what you're doing there. Yeah, totally. So I've had a chance over the last few years to do some work in the Middle East and North Africa and then and looking to extend that to Sub-Saharan Africa as well with a group called Flat Six Labs. And Flat Six is a uh, accelerator program that's part of the Global Accelerator Network, or GAN.co, is uh, the network that Techstars helped put together around the Techstars model for global expansion. So, um, and Flat Six just had their 10 year anniversary. I was actually, I was there in Cairo to do a keynote for their, their team and do a workshop for their team. And then the week before I was at the largest tech event in Egypt called Techni. And that was, uh, it's a little weird because there's 3000 people outside without masks on. And that was a little, that was a little weird, but about a thousand people in the, in the sessions with masks on in a big event, but first big event and first big international trip for 26 months. So that, that part was a little weird. But super fun to be back and and see people again in person. Um, so Flat Six does programs in six cities across MENA. So from uh, Tunis, they're opening in or they just opened a new location in Jordan, um, Cairo, and then Bahrain and and Abu Dhabi. And so I have a chance to to go there and travel and get a chance to meet founders. So over the last four years, I think I've trained about four hundred and twenty five founders or so, four hundred twenty five founding teams. And who are all focused on, you know, MENA, GCC, Africa as market. Um, and the ideas are super interesting, right? There's some that are, that are straight copycats of Western ideas because most U.S. venture-backed companies aren't going to go to Africa anytime soon, right? Because their venture folks will say, you know, you need to focus, Kellen, here and it's the U.S. is enough and blah, 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 which is, you know, probably a fair assessment in the early stage until you have product market fit and really market dominance in the U.S., but it means if you're in Africa, you have a seven or eight year window to do uh, a copycat company that the U.S. company is not going to get here. So super interesting dynamics, lots of friction that needs to be overcome. So, for example, in Tunis, currency doesn't trade. So the, the fun part about that story was they invited me over. It was right before the pandemic. And they're like, it's a little hard to pay you. I'm like, what, what do you mean by that? And they're like, well, Tunisian currency doesn't, doesn't trade on the exchange. So we give you Tunisian currency, we take you to the market, you buy gold, you bring the gold home and you trade it back for USD. And I'm like, I'm in just for the story. Like I've got to come for that, right? Um, I had a chance to visit Beirut um, right at the start of the, the civil unrest there, uh, which sadly hasn't still hasn't slowed down. It's just a, a tragic story. But the thing that I love about it, Kellen, is I show up in a room of 50 founders or 100 founders anywhere in the world, and it's my tribe. Right? We may speak a different language. We may look different. All of us know that seven to ten, seven out of the ten companies there are going to fail. All of us know that it's not us. Right? We're all just slightly delusional. Right? Sometimes completely delusional. But there's, you know, that's only two percent. And you know, I, I love that part. And they all have the same questions, which is, how do I de-risk this investment so that I can, you know, create a community, change the world, right? Whatever their their um, vision and outcome is. So to get a chance to be helpful to those folks is super important to me. And I think I can, you know, help them get to that milestone faster, which is definitely the, the goal. Wow. Got paid in gold, basically. That really opens up an opportunity, you know, for them to say, well, crypto is our friend. You know? Oh, my gosh. Just wire transfers, even from, you know, uh, the GCC countries. Why does it take five days to get a wire transfer? 
that doesn't make any sense. So there's there's natural friction in those markets that haven't been surpassed. Like I think both Dubai and Abu Dhabi will end up being uh, fintech headquarters for MENA in Africa because there's such a bridge between the West and Africa and there's so much antiquated systems. So take the U.S. as an example. In the U.S., you have to be, there's so many federal regulations for doing like a hedge fund or a bank, right? So in Africa, you're going to see entire generations of technology leapfrog multiple generations, right? Because they're not going to go through the same steps we went through in the U.S., which means if you have a vision for where you think the product's going to go and you understand customer acquisition, right? I think the key thing here is that you really need to understand um, marketing and customer acquisition in the local market or hire somebody who does. Because I think it's very much like comedy, right? So I had a friend who's, um, we have an adopted daughter from China. We had a a friend, we were over at her house. She's Chinese. She's married to uh, an American. And we were watching a TV show and there was a laugh track, right? And we laughed and she laughed along with us. I'm like, did you understand that joke? And she's like, no, I just learned that if there's a laugh track and you guys laugh, I just laugh along, right? I think that's like marketing in an international country. Like if you don't know why people are laughing, your marketing is not going to be effective, right? So, and it's true as as you do uh, not just languages, but culture, right? You have to understand the culture to be relevant in uh, things like value propositions and, and, and where there's friction and not friction. So I think it's a tremendous opportunity that the market dynamics, I will tell you from an investor perspective are really interesting. We did an analysis of, um, valuations. So series seed uh, valuations, series A valuations. And because I'm in Seattle, we took Seattle made a Seattle hundred percent. So the value was 184%. So the average seed round was 184% of what it was in Seattle. The average in New York was about 140%. The average in Kansas city was about 72%, but the average in MENA was 22%, which means as an investor, I can invest in a series A traction company for a series seed price. Now, I still have to have a path to exit. So I still have to think about my, my path to exit. Is there going to be somebody from the U.S. that turns around and buys that company, right? And if it makes sense or not, or if they're going to be the biggest player in their, their category, maybe that's not their exit strategy. But uh, lots of opportunities there. You know, the great thing is there are great founders everywhere. However, access to capital is not, is not that way. So, which is why I joined the Fearless Fund. So the quick note on the Fearless Fund is, I was doing a seminar for a friend of mine, Rodney uh, Sampson in OHUB in Atlanta, uh, introduced me to Fearless and they were doing a masterclass. And so I did a seminar on how startups make money and not become a statistic. And Fearless focuses on uh, investing in black and brown women in the U.S. So it was two co-founders, uh, both black women, who decided they wanted to raise a fund. So the fund launched as a $5 million exploratory fund and it blew up like a $25 million fund for all the wrong reasons, as you know, like crazy, good, good timing from a fundraising perspective, bad timing from a U.S. blah, like horrible timing. So all of a sudden they have a $25 million fund. Not all of a sudden, by the way, nothing ever happens overnight. So I, I obviously a little bit of hyperbole there and amazing amount of hard work from the founders. Um, So Arian Simone uh, and Ayanna Parsons are the two co-founders. So I did a seminar um, for about 265 uh, black and brown women on the seminar. Did office hours the next week um, and uh, about 35 women. And then about a week later, I got a call from their admin and said, hey, would, the founders would like to meet you. Like, okay. I have no idea what they wanted to meet me about. But we're about three minutes into the call, Kellen, and it's an interview. And I'm like, I'm <laughs> like, hold on. I'm not really hireable in the traditional sense. Like I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm an author. I sell companies. Like I love venture. Yeah. I've been on a number of venture teams, but um, so we started the process. Um, I came on as a senior partner recently. And um, so the, the fund is, it's, it's been totally fun. Like we're invested in, uh, for those of you, so if you're a black or brown woman and you're a founder and part of a founding team, it doesn't have to be the CEO. Um, we do food and beverage, we do health and beauty, and we do tech. So I will tell you that mm, health and beauty, not so good for me. Like I'm not a great customer, but uh, anything in the tech category, love to, love to see the pitch deck. And it's seed, series A, pre-seed, seed, and series A, which is a really broad category. So average check is about uh, $700,000. Wow. You know, I, I've been struggling with trying to tell young people, I'm, I'm, you know, like the 14-year-old who says, I want to do what you do. 
and how can I do it? And how and what school do I need to go to? And I'm like, there's no school for what I do. And <laughs> sure. it's the same thing. It's the same thing with you. And and when people say, you know, they want to do what you do, and you're part of these companies, not understanding just because they hired you doesn't mean they wrote a check, right? And said, hey, Dave, here, pay your bills. Um, which people say, oh, Kellen, his bills are paid till you know the next millennium. You don't know that. You don't yeah. know what's in people's pocket. You don't understand. So can you kind of like, not to go deep into your wallet, but sure. just give an example of if someone does join a company and let's say they do make a profit for that year, because that, again, like you just mentioned, that doesn't always happen. Um, how does someone like yourself who's, you know, joins and maybe you're even a silent partner. How do you, you know, get your money? When do you get your money? Is it enough money to go to Tahiti and say, I'm done because they've made, you know, let's just say $5 million. Um, break that down for the audience, please. Yeah. So I, so there's a, let me break it down into the categories, some of which I cover in the book, right? So there's services businesses and product businesses. So services businesses are like consulting. So Kellen and I started a consulting company for, and we do a million dollars a year in revenue. We generally would see between 35 and 50% gross profit, so, so GP. So if, if we, it's this great services company and we did a, a million dollars a year in revenue, we would pay out a half million dollars to do for the cost of doing the business. And then we'd have a half million dollars we could split. Let's call it 50-50, just keep the math. So both of us would either take home a salary check of $250,000 a year or dividend ourselves out or pay it through distributions out. So if we're delivering the services, we get paid for the service hours as well, right? But that services business is gated by how many hours you have to sell, right? I could, now you can work 40 hours a week. You could probably sell yourself 80 hours a week of time, but at some point you're like, I'm on a treadmill that is not sustainable, right? So that's at the services business. And services businesses are good, but they're not fundable. Like no VC is going to fund a service business because it's totally dependent on Kellen and I delivering the services. And if we don't deliver the services, we don't get paid. Right. So just know that that's part of the process is um, services businesses require you to work and you, you don't make money when you sleep. Right. Now there's product businesses, product businesses allow you to scale up disproportionately to people. So now what the product is matters a lot. If it's a retail product, you're back to kind of service hours again, because there's only so many hours a day that you can work. And your customers are based on the local geography. So that's a local business versus, I won't call it a small business because I don't think any, any of us ever went, oh my God, I can't wait to run a small business. Like that just, that was my dream, right? So, so if it's a geographically constrained business with a single retail location, you have the same service hours problem. So let's say you want to do um, a, a virtual company and created an app. The average app on the app store makes about $6,000 in its lifetime. So... It's not a bad business, you know, if, if you're a developer and you can build an app, it's a, it's a good business, but the average app makes about $6,000. So if you have bigger dreams than that, you may want to do a, a subscription business or a software subscription business. We think of it as SaaS, but it's really a subscription business, right? Which is somebody pays me monthly for a product. So my example would be Strava. So I'm a, I'm a cyclist. I had a hip replaced a few years ago. Success is choosing your parents well, I totally failed. So I started cycling for physical therapy and kept it up, right? So I pay a monthly subscription to Strava and it allows me to track all my miles. So that subscription business now allows me to make money when I sleep, but I have to build the product in advance before I get paid <laughs> because no one's going to pay me if I don't have the product, right? So now I have to garner the investment, right? Build an MVP, minimum viable product, and then get out and say to the customers, is this what you want or not? And if the answer is yes, then they'll start to pay me, right? So in that case, I have to get the investment in front of it. So the good thing about services businesses, you can bootstrap it. You don't need any outside investment. So the bad thing about product businesses is you need to prove that the customers really want the product so you can get enough investment or enough bootstrap time to prototype a product. So, but the good news is, is Strava, it makes money while you sleep. It's brilliant, right? And every month people pay that same, that same subscription, right, on their credit card. So every month your revenue goes up. Now, as a founder, do you get any of that money? And the answer is, in the early days, no. Like, you'll probably be 50% of your average wage for your peer set as a group. But as you get closer to raising a, a round of funding, you're going to be pretty close to that market. 
And then every dollar you make, you're going to reinvest in growth and reinvest in growth and reinvest in growth. And at some point, you'll either sell the company through a merger and acquisition, which is what I do vocationally for a living now, um, or you'll get um, go public, right? And at that point, the answer is you, you do end up with cash in the bank for sure, right? But up until that day, probably not. Like it's it's always a slog, right? So when I grew my first company, I think I was you know under market for the first three years, and we finally got to at market. And we when we sold the company, it was an okay sale. It wasn't a great sale. So, you know, did you bank some cash? Yeah. So the venture world, though, is an entirely different business model because you can tell I'm geeky about models at this point because I'm like, I want to know the breakdown of how things actually work. So the what I did with the book was we, um, I went back, somebody came to me and said, hey, can I have a copy of your financial model? I'm like, well, mine's a B2B subscription and yours is a B2C marketplace, right? So you're connecting buyers and sellers on a consumer basis I'm doing a subscription on a business enterprise basis. They're similar, but they're different. So it led to this question, Kellen, of like, how many revenue models are there if you wanted to build templates to give the template away to the founder to help them get launched? So and it took me so long to write the book that we ended up with a five-year longitudinal study of 2,600 companies, which ones failed, which ones succeeded. And then we looked at how long it took them to raise money from their Series A, Series C to the Series A and from the Series A to the Series B, and we plotted them out on the, on the list. There's 14 models. So, and if, by the way, if you have a 15th and you're a founder and you're like, I disagree with you, David, like, I'll write about it for sure, right? But in general, what we found was during that time, remember Groupon? So yeah. Groupon was peaking at the start of this data set. So, and it was like, oh, it's a unique model. Ultimately, it was lead gen and commerce, right? So they sold somebody else's product and they got a lead for selling that, selling that product. Then you have companies like uh, DocuSign, right? Who's an enterprise subscription business or Twilio that is a um, metered service business. So you pay a small subscription fee and then as you use more, you pay more like AWS or Azure, right? So in the 14 models, what, what we found Kellen, that was the most astounding piece of data about it was back to my example of a service company. You and I run a million dollar services business in consulting. It's profitable. Somebody says, hey, we want to buy it. They're going to buy it for roughly a million dollars, one times revenues. DocuSign trades 30 times revenues. So if you look at their market cap divided by their trailing 12 in sales, it's 30 or 32 times revenues today. So if you're going to spend time and build a million-dollar business, you can build a million-dollar business that sells for a million dollars, or you can build a million-dollar business that sells for $30 million. Yeah. Only what I know now, oh, my God, why would you build a business that sold for a million dollars, right? Yeah. So I, I think that's where the curiosity for me breaks down the how companies make money. We then turn around and apply that to um, – there's about 210 publicly traded tech companies, and now we track them on a quarterly basis for what their multiple is on sales. So, and that's the, the common binder there. And by the way, Groupon today trades at 0.24 times sales. So ultimately it wasn't a super unique revenue model. And I think that's part of the point is revenue models aren't defensible, right? So if somebody invents a new revenue model, everybody else can copy it, right? And we're seeing companies, you know, there's, subscriptions everywhere, right? I mean, you can get a subscription for anything. Some of the stuff, even like Amazon's like, you can get a subscription to LaCroix water delivered to your door, right? So some of the subscriptions are a little silly, but um, the idea there is if you have a choice of revenue model, you should consider the one that pays off the best. You, you know, you say it's silly until you miss your Portland's catch up and you're like, I don't want to be without this and my kids pour too much catch up. So, I, you know, I, I get it because uh, Portland's ketchup. I I, I might have got caught in that one time. I said I need my Portland's ketchup, and everyone's like, you know. But yeah, your the water, your ketchup, my barbecue sauce, Everett and Jones. Thank you. Um, I'm from Oakland, so I have to have my Everett and Jones barbecue sauce wherever I go. Love it. Uh, <laughs> now you have done you know so much, and you're still you know young. You're not uh, done. The best is yet to come. What is a community give back? And you've mentioned, you know, uh, plenty already, but what's one um, that you haven't mentioned or one that you would like to do in the future? Yeah, I think one of the things we're doing right now, which has been super fun, is um, with the Washington Technology Industry Association here in Seattle, we 
started about four years ago and recognized there was a, there was a, a greenfield opportunity around how do we help level up founders in, in our region, starting with Seattle and Puget Sound area. And so we started doing programming, both the early seed stage stuff that I've worked on through the book and the trajectory series, which is the five month uh, pre-accelerator program. And then we started a program called a cohort program for founders here in, in the Seattle Metro uh, Puget Sound area. And the idea was, how do we help level up the founders so that with two objectives? One is you're, you're going through the same decision process other founders like you were going through. So how do we connect you with that group of peers, right? And then the second thing is, is if, if you knew how to navigate the ecosystem here in Seattle the way I knew how, you'd be like, don't do these things, definitely do these things, stay away from these people, right? You just... It, you can do it in six months instead of 18 to 24 months. So the, so our two defining factors of success were how do we help founders connect with other founders so that in the future they will reinvest in the community? Because if it's the PayPal mafia or now the new one that's emerged is the Uber mafia, right? So the folks who have been at Uber that have reinvested in each other, it's like a massive flywheel effect. And it's something the Valley has that no other city in the world has, right? So we were looking at it saying, how do we manufacture that here in Seattle? So we created a set of programs uh, we just found out two weeks ago that we have uh, we applied for a federal grant, a build the scale grant. So we had local sponsors. We applied for the federal grant on a state level, and we were able to to get I think it's uh, about six hundred thousand dollars, seven hundred thousand dollars over the next three years to fund these programs outside of Seattle across the state. So it's a chance for us to really scale that up at a level that will help reach new founders, especially underrepresented founders. Uh, outside of the Seattle metro area. So super on mission for me. Like if the, the sad point about venture, just to get to baseline everybody is if you look at venture capital, everyone knows that um, black founders are completely underrepresented. Women are completely underrepresented. Over the last 20 years, 3.1% of venture capital has gone to white dudes named Dave. 2.8% has gone to all women. It's embarrassing. Right. So if I can spend time in this next phase of my life writing some of those wrongs, I'm totally in. Right. So with the grant, now we're able to go back to the earlier stage and provide access to founders who would not otherwise not have access. So access matters. Right. And then we also have to fix the funding dilemma. Right. Because if I give you access, I'm just going to frustrate the hell out of you if there's no access to a grant or funding or help you build your MVP. So that's the next piece we're working on. But if you're in a different state, if you're in Michigan or um, Indiana or somewhere, you're like, I want to replicate what you guys are doing. We're taking all of the docs and making them open source. We want you to replicate it. We'll help you replicate it. If you don't have a nonprofit, the WTA could be the nonprofit back, backbone to help you do it. Because what we've seen historically is that in every burst and bubble cycle, right, people are like, we need to support founders. And then they end up doing little piles of rocks and they're like, isn't it awesome? And I'm like, actually, it's not. Like, they, we didn't do anything new there. Like, we want to do something big. So we've, we're taking all the programming so and making it open source. We're taking all of the fundraising docs, making the narrative open source. So if you want to run this in your state, we'll help you, right? Because that's ultimately you have to recognize that, you know, what we're doing. When we launched this four years ago at WTIA, I went to the CEO and I'm like, this is a 10-year goal, right? So don't measure our effectiveness in three years, right? Measure our effectiveness in 10 years. And everybody, when we launched it, they're like, oh, that's, that's just really hard. And now we're three years into it. And everybody's like, oh, my God, this has been amazing. And I'm like, no, 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 not yet. <laughs> like, I'm glad it has been. And I'm glad we got the grant. But, you know, my, my goal is to leave the, um, my ecosystem in better shape than I found it. So, and I'm not done with that yet. Right. So the, the leveling the playing field of providing the access is super important from a funding perspective, joining uh, Fearless when, you know, when they asked about like, hey, would you consider? I'm like, you know, a friend of mine has the the uh, the analogy of F yeah, right? So if you if you hang, if somebody asks you something you're like F yeah, like that's I'm like oh my god, that's on mission. So I don't know your audience, so I'm being I'm being very discreet compared to my normal self. But you know, hell yeah, like that's I'm in, right? So for me, that's that's the fun part. So let me break down one last thing though, because you asked about it, and I didn't mean to uh, go away from it. The way venture capital works is is the way you get make money as a venture capitalist is what's called two and twenty. So let's say we raise a hundred million dollar fund. That means two percent, the two of the twenty, 
is paid to us in fees every year to staff and pay for the expenses of the venture fund, right? More often it's a $10 million starting fund, not a hundred million. So I don't want people to be excited. So let's go with the $10 million version, okay. right? So now I have uh, $200,000 to spend. So you and I have to look at that and go like, let's pay ourselves 75 K because we're going to use the rest on expenses. Right. And then we have legal expense and we have, we have all of the expenses to pay. Every year that fee accrues and we have to pay that fee back out of what's called the 20 and the 20 is called the carry. So if we invest in a company, a half million dollars, the company turns around and we make $10 million in returns, we would get $2 million for the partnership and $8 million would be go back to the limited partners, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then for you and I, as the co-founders of the fund, we have to pay back that $200,000 a year for however many years we haven't paid it back before we get a distribution to pay back that money. So the average venture capital fund is what is 10 years in duration plus two one-year extensions. So get rich quick, not so much. Like And small funds, economics are super rough. Um, you do get to say you're a venture capitalist for whatever that's worth. But I have to say, if you want to start a company, if you want a big title, Start a company and make yourself like CEO or minister of order and reason. Like you can give yourself a badass title. It doesn't mean it's a big business, right? So know that venture capital is really all about investing in founders, creating returns for the founders. And if we do that well, then we make money, right? So um, I would say that's the one thing I wish I had learned differently in the order of things, Kellen. I wish I had learned how to make money earlier in my career versus I indexed on how do you run a business? versus how do you make money and those are two very distinctly different skill sets so um i would say you know that i learned that secondhand versus i was a hustler right i was out and hustle culture is super interesting and you have to work all the time and blah, blah blah i'm not sure that's healthy but i would say learning how to make money in in if, if you think about it as a four quadrant box right there's the 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 x and y axis are um the customer has a high pain threshold. Like they really, really want what you have to sell and they have a high willingness to pay, right? Cause if they, if the pain threshold is, it's not painful for them and they're not willing to pay, you can build the product and nobody will pay you for it and you won't make any money. If you build a product that the customer is, has a high pain and a high willingness to pay, they will pay you almost anything, right? Cause that's the difference between a pain pill and a vitamin. A vitamin's a nice to have and a pain pills. I, I have to have that. Right. So I would say if you're if you're listening, one thing I would encourage you to think about is, is this high pain for the customer and high willingness to pay? And if it's not, it probably is a nice to have. Wow. You guys have really gotten the game and I want you to take this and, you know, rewind it. If, if you said something, you didn't catch it. Rewind it. Um, definitely check out the book. Even for those of you who like audiobooks, you can get the audiobooks on Amazon. But I would also say there seems to be some graphs and some models that you may want to look at and study. So you might want to get the audiobook and get the book. And you say, Kevin, but I don't have any money for both. I want you then to request it from your library and keep requesting it. And, um, you know, I'm sure if Dave does not already have, you know, library is already buying it in the cat system and you know we'll, we'll talk about that off air he will be if he's not so i i appreciate you for coming on and giving the game please tell the people where or if they can con contact you because what i don't want them to do ever don't want everyone to go on linkedin go hey dave i got a great idea and this is it no there is you know hierarchy even in heaven they say so and there's a process in everything you do so if they just want to connect and learn more after getting the book yeah. where should they go yeah so dkparker.com is my website and has all the blogs so if you if you can figure out which blogs i wrote in which order you can get the book for free so because there's a 180 blog post there i will say they're not linear just so to give you a heads up uh, to your point, you can get the audiobook on Audible. I do hear if you listen to it, I, I did read the book for you. So if you listen to me on 2x speed, you can get through it on four hours and six minutes. Not that I would recommend that, but um, learning how to read an audiobook was totally interesting. Um, and on social media, I'm at Dave uh, Parker SEA, so for Seattle. So you can find me on on Twitter, and and uh, I'm not huge on Instagram. I have to do that to follow my kids, but I, I 
I tried to kill both my Facebook and Instagram account at one point because I was so disappointed in them. And I'm like, oh, I have to, I have to follow my kids to know what's going on. So, uh, but LinkedIn, uh, Dave Parker SEA, Twitter, Dave Parker SEA. And I would say I'm not, if you reach out on LinkedIn, just know that to your, to your point, Kellen, here's my requirement. My requirement is because I get a lot of people who are like, Hey, I read the book. Can we, can I do a, an office hours blah, blah, blah. I'm like, fine. Just give me the name of the person you're mentoring who doesn't look like you. Mm. Right. And then I'm happy to give you an office hour. Or maybe you need to find somebody who doesn't look like you and mentor them, which would be rad. And then ask for the office hour. But the, the, the bar there is not super high, but you, you're always a chapter ahead of somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're good at product or tech or marketing, there's somebody you can mentor who needs your help, right? And as long as they don't look like you, I'm totally in. But if they look like you, I'm really not, just so you know. Well, let, let's leave the people with this it, because it's a teachable moment when you say something like that because if we're playing both sides, you know, VC will say, well, we give money to who we like and who's around us. And if you're not in our circle, right, and how do you get in, you know, the vulture circle, um, that there's, there's many of, of ways. But um, I, how, how can people get in to, you know, and find people who don't look like them if they are a white guy named Dave, and they're like, hey, I don't, I'm, I'm here in Kentucky. I don't see a lot of people who I'd even want to hang around. And, and I say that, Dave, because there are, you know, being in Seattle, you're blessed with DC. You're blessed with angels and all these things. But there's also some people in the city who do look like me who are jerks, who aren't nice people because they make so much money and they think that they're king's cut. You know, and they even, they, they act as if they're for the community, but they're really for their own pocket. And you don't know the last time they even volunteered to help somebody. So how, you know, what's your say on that? Because so many people say we give money to people that we like. It's not that, you know, the people that I like look like me. Um, And that's who I know. So, you know, that might also, you know, be something for the future that, you know, you write a whole book just on that alone because so many people don't get it. How do they get outside of their circle? Yeah, for sure. So I would say the, the practical side is um, look for the startup community and events. So things like Startup Grind, Startup Weekend, and just volunteer. Like come in and volunteer, right? So help help registrations, help schlep pizzas, right? I can't tell you the number of events. And like I showed up at an event when I was in Alexandria, Egypt, right? The event was in the, at the French consulate, which is super cool, right? I'm an event guy. So I'm like, who needs help doing something? They're like, you don't need to help. You're the keynote speaker. I'm like, I'm an event guy, right? So somebody needs to schlep the pizzas, right? So use it as a chance to volunteer and, and, and be part of the community. One of the things that happens a lot, and, and, you've, and it happens here a ton in Seattle, right? That the VCs aren't in the community, they're above the community. And I would encourage you just to be part of the community. And so, and then look for opportunities there to say, hey, how, how can I help? right? Um, Because there's always a startup founder like you who's working on a different project that's not competitive, right? They have a different skill set you have. Help each other, right? Mentoring may be too strong of a word, but I think the Techstars captures it well and give first. And I think the thing I'd leave you with, Kellen, is there's a great blog post recently written. Evan Spiegel, who's the CEO and founder of Snap, wrote a, a post about how it's not enough to work hard. You need to know how to work the system. And it was very aha for me because I, 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 you know, part of me is like wants to be egalitarian and like, hey, we're, you know, we're a meritocracy in tech and it's really about, right? We're not. Like, it's just not true, right? So y- there is a system to be worked and you need to figure out the system because you can work your ass off and still not be successful. But if you know how to work your ass off in the system, right, that's, and Spiegel's point was, that's how you become a billionaire. Right. So obviously I didn't know how to work the system that way because I'm not a billionaire. But at the same time, the aha was there is a system to be worked. Right. And you need to you need to figure that out as well, because it's a playbook. Right. And it's not fair and it's not equal. Right. But I would say it's learnable if you're curious. Right. And there's and there are there is a roadmap to it as well. So find the folks in your community who you want to hang with. Some of them will be successful. Some of them won't. Me, me as well, right? Some of those companies worked, some of them didn't, right? And you, you learn more from your failures than your successes for sure, right? 
And if anybody says that's not true, then they've never failed, right? Which probably means they've never actually tried anything because that's the only way you can do that. So yeah, I would just say learn being around the community helps you grow the community. When I started in the Seattle community in 1998, Bill G and Jeff Bezos weren't giving back to the startup community, right? They were busy working on their deals, right? Both of them worked out okay, right? Don't no complaints, right? But if you can be part of the community, look at how do you contribute. How do you volunteer? How do you, you know, before you're a speaker, you're going to be a volunteer at the registration desk. It's just part of the gift. You guys have gotten the game. Make sure if you do nothing else, you share this with somebody, it will change their life. Hi, everyone. Have you ever been curious about visiting Africa? Which African country were you interested in? Kenya, Nigeria, Uganda, South Africa, Ethiopia. Which country are you interested in? My good friend, Kellen Cash Coleman, came up with a course called My First Trip to Africa that'll guide you through this process. It's only $20, and in this course, you'll learn about passports, visas, vaccinations that you need before you go there, as well as a budget, uh, how much the trip is going to cost. He also talks about what you should pack, uh, what you should take with you, how you should travel on a budget. Did you know that $100 US dollars is worth a 1,000 South African rand and over 10,000 Kenyan shillings? So imagine what you can do with $100 back home. I say back home because I'm from Sudan, I'm African. I already know how it's like. I know that, you know, when you convert Canadian and American money, it goes a long way when you're traveling across Africa. So if you're curious, um, if, if Africa is a place that you've always wanted to go, always wanted to move there, Kellen Cash is the person to ask. Check out the course. There's a little preview you can listen to. Um, before you actually purchase it. If you're interested in this course, visit www.diversifiedgame.com. Don't miss out. Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversified Game Podcast with Kellen, the number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. Be sure to visit DiversifiedGame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.